Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest movies into your home at the touch of a button. Now playing on demand is Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, the story of a high school senior named Greg who finds his outlook on life forever altered after he's forced to spend time with a terminally ill classmate. Also playing on demand is The Final Girls, a movie about a group of friends who gets trapped inside their favorite slasher film and must fight off a maniacal killer in order to escape. Catch it on demand just in time for Halloween. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. On this episode of SVU, it's geriatric starlets, enormous bracelets, and chunky necklaces galore as we review Albert Maisel's Iris. Inspired by Iris, we were going to do an entire podcast devoted to great eyewear in the movies. Tom Cruise's Aviators from Top Gun, Cyclops' Laser Visor from X-Men. But a whole podcast about Top Gun and X-Men? Well, that just sounded too awesome. And frankly, we don't want to do anything so great on SVU because once we peak like that, how are we ever going to top it again? We're setting a bar we would never be able to clear. So instead, because Iris subject Iris Apple is a fashion icon, we thought let's do a podcast all about fashion icons on screen. The men and women of the movies whose sartorial style has inspired us and often made us feel insanely jealous. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. And Allison, it's your turn to give us the picks. What is up first? Well, first up is a movie with the kind of title you really don't forget because it's so long and Mm. awkward. A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence, now available on demand. That last part is not part of the title. (laughs) Uh, This is the latest film from director Roy Anderson, uh, who is a very idiosyncratic maker of films. If you've seen the earlier two films from the kind of informal trilogy that Pigeon Sat Sat on a Branch is the third part of, Songs from the Second Floor and You the Living, then you have some idea of what to expect. But uh, if you haven't, I will try and explain. You don't need to have seen the other two films to enjoy this one. Uh, These movies are set in a world in which everyone is extremely deadpan, very pale looking. It looks like it might be purgatory. There's no color anywhere. Mm. Each sequence plays out with uh, a static camera usually, and they're these elaborately choreographed, carefully, like often very funny 
and very kind of straight-faced bits of almost sketches. They're vignettes. Some characters recur, some don't. Sometimes magic kind of slips in. Uh, one of the best scenes in uh, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence is one set on this bar, in, the, in this bar in the outskirts of town, in which one of the famous kings of Sweden rides in on a horse into the bar with his army walking past the window. This whole scene, people are just streaming past the window outside. And he comes in to have a drink, to hit on the bartender, and to kind of take a break before going off to battle. Why there is this weird, uh, this kind of time loop in which this long dead king has come back to a present day bar, no one explains or even seems that surprised about. But it is, it is very funny, very strange, and really exquisitely staged. And uh, that is true of all of the kind of various scenes that occur in this movie, which slowly become this meditation on on happiness and kind of the meaning of life and how we treat other people. In another scene, which I think is, is particularly exemplary as well, uh, it's seemingly in a cafeteria on a cruise ship and a man has died and he is lying on the floor uh, in front of the cashier. And while they're trying to figure out what to do, the cashier points out, like, what am I supposed to do with his lunch? Like, he's already bought it, so I can't give it back but I don't want to just throw this fruit away. And so over his corpse, someone says, like, does anyone want a free shrimp sandwich or a free beer? It's already been paid for. And there's silence for a moment. And then someone says, well, I'll take the beer. It's, it's a really magical and very kind of uh, unique movie. And I just, I love Roy Anderson's work. And this, if maybe not quite as, as, whole as you the living uh the film he made before this is still i think really wonderful and just and and very singular in its tone uh it's a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence and you should check it out you will not be sorry also now available on demand when marnie was there this is the latest film from studio ghibli and as always recently it is possibly one of the last films from studio ghibli it is directed by hiromasa yonabayashi who previously did the secret world of arietti for studio ghibli and this one is a ghost story of sorts it's about a foster child named anna who is sent to live by the sea for health reasons. And there she becomes drawn to this dilapidated mansion out in the marshes, which looks abandoned, but which turns out to be the home of a girl named Marnie, who Anna befriends. And it is, like all Ghibli films, the kind of thing that is both wonderful and also makes your heart ache. Uh, this is not unique in that. And it's interestingly uh, interestingly based on a British British story, British source material that gets ported over to Japan. Uh, and, you know, it is in general just a really great little film, as basically everything that Ghibli has put out has been. So that's When Marnie Was There, and that is now available on demand. And finally, a movie that will be available by the time this podcast is up, Mississippi Grind, which is the new film from Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, the filmmaking duo who made Half Nelson and Sugar. Uh, and this is a movie about a gambler who's played by Ben Mendelsohn, who has been living a kind of life of desperation in a small town in Iowa when he meets a younger gambler who also has a bit of a desperate, crazy streak, played by Ryan Reynolds. And the two of them take off on this road trip down south, uh, gambling really worrying amounts of money along the way. It works as a kind of informal remake of California Split. 
Even the title kind of reminds yeah, you of it. Exactly. And it's I mean, Ben Mendelsohn is a great actor. Really, few people have as good a kind of crumply face as Ben Mendelsohn. Um, and, you know, I think he's been having a very good kind of year, what with the Netflix series has been on as well. But uh, this is a very good role for him and a very good role for Ryan Reynolds, who's one of those actors who never quite seems to find the right movie that really brings out his strengths. And in this case, he plays someone who is almost self-consciously cast himself as uh, this kind of like magical wanderer, kind of darting into people's lives and and never really settling down. And uh, he, he kind of brings the charm that he has, a very considerable charm, but there's also this streak of like very kind of scary emptiness underneath that uh, I think he handles really well. So it's, uh, it's a really nice little movie and one that I think has kind of gotten released fairly quietly yeah. and uh, it is definitely worth taking a look at now that it's on demand. That is Mississippi Grind. are mostly from Tibet. They weigh a ton. I wear them only when I'm assured that I can go home in about half an hour. Well, that's supposed to be me atop this ostrich. The jacket is made of barnyard feathers. I think it was in an American Vogue that I saw the first thing about Iris. I think that for her also, the exhibition at the Met was a very big change in her life. And I'm an octogenarian starlet. I think that's fun. <laughs> Because our last episode came out a little bit late, you had less time than usual to vote in our listeners' choice poll where you guys, the Film Spotting SVU listeners, pick our main review by voting at our website, filmspottingsvu.com. When we closed the poll, it was Iris that topped two other recent documentary profiles, Keith Richards, Under the Influence, about the famous Rolling Stone guitarist, and that guy, Dick Miller, about the not particularly famous character actor. Almost one out of every two votes wanted to almost one out of every two votes went to Iris. And while I'm sure we have an extremely well-dressed listenership, I have a hunch people were less interested in determining whether it's okay to wear two different patterns on shirt and pants as they were in exploring the work of Albert Mazels, the brilliant documentarian who died last spring at the age of 88. Mazels and his brother David were leaders in the direct cinema movement of nonfiction filmmaking. And they made pioneering works like Salesman, Gimme Shelter, and Grey Gardens, all of which are still watched today, considered masterpieces. David Mazels passed away in 1987. Albert carried on making documentaries for almost 20 years without his brother. Iris is just one of several movies that Mazels directed in the last years of his life. And even though I don't believe it's technically his last movie, it definitely has a a fitting late career subject matter. It's about fashion maven and self-described geriatric starlet Iris Apfel, a former interior designer who became a fashion icon in her 80s after a small portion of her enormous collection of designer clothes and costume jewelry became the basis of an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. In Iris, Maisel's follows Iris on her day-to-day routine – which involves running seminars, teaching college students, and caring for her husband, Carl, who's almost 100 at the time of shooting. Now, Allison, we're both very familiar with the classic Maisel's films like Grey Gardens. So my question to you is this. How do you think Iris rates with those great documentary masterpieces? 
And if you don't think it's quite up to snuff, what do you think is missing? Well, it's the kind of film that initially feels very small. Mm -hmm. It is about, you know, uh, this delightful elderly lady. Absolutely. Who's got a lot going on. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it is a movie that seems quite deliberately to skip a lot of, I don't know, the kind of like, the the more like, it, it doesn't dig into a lot of the mo- the things that Iris mentions in passing about like choosing never to have children or uh, kind of like how like not being pretty, something she's mentioned before, like all of these little details that she men- mentions in passing, you know, that kind of, that you feel someone else might've chosen, chosen to dig into a bit more or kind of make a heavier beat, a through line through this movie. This right. movie does not. It is very careful to just stay with Iris in her very busy day to day. She's got a lot going on for a lady in her nineties yep. or for someone who is not in their nineties. <laughs> Lots more than I have going on. Um, and I think that there is something that feels small about that, but that I, I think there's more to it than I, the more I thought about this movie, the more I felt like there was a bit more weight to it mm, necessarily. Interesting. I did like that it starts off with what feels like a direct nod to Grey Gardens. Iris stands into the camera and explains her outfit, just yep. like little Edie does. Yeah. And I think that there are times where Iris, in some ways, is seen as a reflection of the director, of Albert Maisel's, you know, in, including the very last shot in which Al Maisel's goes in front of, sits down next to her in front of the camera. Someone who has, also has a famous pair of glasses, Albert Maisel's. That's true. And, and, and who has been working well into the, his later years. And I think that even if this is a movie that it's like, what, like 80 minutes long? I think know? it's almost exactly 80 minutes. Yes. That is, is kind of very deliberately narrow. I think it has a lot of very nice resonances to the larger Maisel's career that I really appreciated. Mm, yeah. Um, how about you? Did you think that it... I think we're pretty much on the same page. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, up to the, you know, like sort of the masterpieces. And we can talk about why. But I agree that there is, despite it's sort of, it's very, it's a very light, it's a very pleasant film to watch. You know, as you said, it doesn't dig deeply into some of these Things that are mentioned in passing, you know, and and it could be a a darker, sadder film in some ways, or at least a more inquisitive film, let's say. Uh, The fact that I agree that it seems like Iris in some ways, despite it being about her and her life, that if she's not a stand-in for Albert Maisel's, let's say that she is a a figure that it seems like he may feel a kinship with, a sort of – and not just because they're roughly the same age, just that, like you said – you know, being at this age and still plowing ahead, still working, you know, still trying, still caring. Still being very engaged with life. Yes. And, you know, very, like, curious about things. That's right. Because if, as you said, if Iris has a busy schedule, Albert Mazels is the one who's got to keep up with her on that busy schedule, right? He's got, he's the one, and he's the one who's lugging around a camera. I mean, we see him a couple of times in the movie holding, I mean, he's one of the cameramen. He's not just, you know, uh, sitting in an editing room somewhere compiling someone else's footage. He is there on the ground. He is, uh, and he's the one talking to her. Repeatedly, we hear his voice coming from off camera, asking her questions, or Iris will actually talk directly to him. She'll mention him. She'll introduce him to people in her life. So, yeah, I think there is something to that. The, The poignance, and I did find it to be a pretty moving sort of like I said, not a final movie technically, but you know, just this idea of not only that it's about uh, working into this late period in your life, but also I think maybe the idea of you get the sense, although there are those sort of moments where maybe tinges of sort of 
maybe darkness or melancholy might be the best word, kind of creep in at the edges, you do get the sense that Iris is a woman who has not and continues not to wasted her life, right? She has – it's been a life well spent, right? And almost feel like it's kind of maybe a a, sort of a message, a passing down of that message from, uh, you know, a guy like Albert Maisels who – from a position of knowledge saying, you know, you don't want to get to this point in your life and look back and say, boy, I really – flitted everything away. I didn't spend my time wisely. That even before she became this geriatric starlet, she had a pretty awesome life, gallivanting around the world and in you know, you know, designing things for the White House and all this stuff. And just the idea that every day is precious and that this woman didn't let anything stand in her way, you know, that she wasn't necessarily trained, quote unquote, in any of these things. Uh, and that maybe someone might have told her along the way if she had stopped to ask that maybe she wasn't necessarily quote unquote qualified. She never let that stop her. She followed her passion. And there's something very beautiful about that. Now we can talk about what maybe the film was lacking in some categories. And I, I have some things. But I think as a film to watch for 80 minutes, like you walk away with some pretty powerful things, I think. Yeah. And I do think that this is a movie that has depths to it that don't reveal themselves right away because I think it is very easy to look at it as a kind of cute portrait of this like outsized figure right but I think that it also engages one with the idea of style versus fashion right Mm -hmm. this is very much about someone whose ideas are outside of seasons the seasons of fashion and what is au courant she is very unique in her taste she she doesn't follow trends she clearly follows her muse exactly and that and her her personal taste is so clear you know that like it is so strong and distinctive and it the movie celebrates that but i think that it also it also engages with this idea that's brought up in the beginning of this that fashion is uh, is not treated seriously, right? It is. It's looked at as tending to be more feminine. It is this idea of kind of like uh, shopping and decorating and all of these things that are associated with like women's arts, right? right. Um, and and yet, as it kind of raises the idea of like what is like why isn't it art? You know, the the how that you choose to kind of like dress yourself and decorate yourself and put together these unexpected combinations like the ability to curate like her her collection and her house are both presented as these kind of acts of curation mm-hmm. you know that merit a museum show at one right. point and that's how she becomes a starlet and it, it it opens up this idea of of kind of 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 collection as an art, mm. and particularly collection of these things that people tend to ta- look at as frivolous, yes, right, fashion. Uh, but like, she and she appreciates, you know, the couture designers yes. certainly. But we also see her wearing like, is it a Mickey Mouse denim shirt or there's a shirt she wears? I yeah. think it's a shirt, a denim shirt, and it has cartoon characters. It's the kind of thing you would buy at like a mall store, whether it's the Disney Store, Warner Brothers. I forget what character. But just the kind of thing. This is not exactly the sort of thing you would uh, you would go to Italy or or Paris to buy. Or, you know, this is not something from a runway show, right? Well, and she has these beautiful couture things, but she right. also has this deep appreciation for. We see her going up to Harlem with a friend and going to like this African import store to buy things there and yeah. haggling over everything. And uh, you know, uh, it definitely the idea of this very 
this broad taste that encompasses everything and that is not attached to, which is certainly like a luxury. It's certainly a luxury to be like, I like this $5,000 gown as much as I like this, right. you know, $11 bracelet that I bought right. at the market. Most people don't have the, the first option, <laughs> but that, that she sees something, she sees this particular beauty in all of them. Right. It's not just about the designer, the brand, the label that she has a, she has taste and style. And I think you're right. I think there, you know, and I think that may be something that is another kind of touchstone for Albert Maisel's, what you're talking about in some ways is about being an iconoclast and being outside the norm and following. And as you said, being an artist and following your personal muse and not following a trend, you know, and you talk about those, early films, you know, a lot of the, what the Maisels were doing and their contemporaries were moving past what other people said was the way to make a documentary and doing what they believed was the right way to make a documentary. And I think that you see a certain kinship between him and the way Iris approaches uh, fashion. And I agree that is that absolutely, this is all stuff that, uh, you know, a lot of people would uh, look down upon, um, you know, denigrate as not uh, not a, a, as not great serious. an art. It's not, not serious. serious. Exactly. And what I think you see, and I don't even think Iris would particularly want to get into that argument, but I think what, what she makes a case for is how wonderful it is. Like, you know, and she says, it's great to get dressed and to, to, to when you, like, put something like this together, there's something beautiful about that, right? And I think she makes a really passionate case for why what she does is art. Right. And who cares? And and also she doesn't really care what anyone else thinks, right. which is so great because the people who would say, well, this is not a, this is not a art or whatever. She's like, well, nuts to you. It makes me happy. And that's what's important. And I think I think that's really admirable as well. Is it that again, getting back to that idea of being an iconoclast, following your your passion, who and nuts to what anyone else thinks. I think that's really beautiful as well. Well, and I think that the movie is careful in positioning her. I mentioned that she she says twice that she is no great beauty. You know, first she mentions it was when she was younger. Yes. That the the Mrs. Loman of Lomans like said, you know, young lady, you're never going to be pretty, but you've got great, you've got style. Mm-hmm. And that later, like the, one of the last lines in the film is her saying, you know, I knew all these pretty girls and their beauty faded and then they had nothing. Right. But I never cared about that. To and she talks about yes. plastic surgery. Right, and exactly. How and she would she never get never that. Do it. But I think that there's something very distinctive about her style that is very, that are very carefully placed to not be about style as something that involves making yourself appealing to someone else. You know, it is not her it's not style. About sexuality. Exactly. Her style is not about being like, what is the most like, flattering dress that will make someone right. think that I'm the most beautiful. It is totally divorced from someone else's outside gaze, right? right. It is absolutely about the things that she thinks look great. Right. It's about treating herself not as like a sexual object, but as like a blank canvas upon which to place these beautiful things to create this sort of like collage art, essentially. Right. And I think that that's, you know, uh, certainly it's, that's certainly that's phrasing and kind of like that's that's a discussion that gets had amongst like like high runway kind of runway couture right Mm -hmm. that like often those things are not the things you would ever see someone wear on the street right they're not always traditionally flattering but they're you know they show a vision that is like more uh, more lofty than retail wear right? right but i think that she kind of embodies it in this much more earthy way that it is not 
She just wears the things she loves. Right. But the other thing you could say is a lot of those couture things are impractical and can't be worn. And whereas she's wearing these kind of wild outfits, but they're also very wearable. Like she can, you know, it's not like she's buying these things that she can't wear. Right. She wears them all. Well, maybe not all because she seems to have the largest collection of clothes (laughs) in the entire world. Um, I mean, getting back to my original sort of introduction, I mean, I don't want to just – gush on the movie when I have to say that there were, you know, the thing that I sort of was, I feel like the movie is very good, but could have been even better potentially if, I don't know. I mean, it is a lovely portrait. And I think, as you said, it gets at these very interesting ideas. It It is poignant at times. I do wish there maybe was a little bit of some sort of story, conflict, stakes, just not maybe all of those things, but something, you know, like I think that a movie like Gimme Shelter is to me, it's like maybe my favorite documentary. And one of the things that, that makes that documentary so great, it is, you know, that there is an event, there is a thing, you know, it opens with, even if you don't know what Altamont was, it has these radio broadcasts that open it and kind of explain what's going to happen in this movie. And then we watch the movie almost with the Rolling Stones as they go on this tour. They're looking at the footage on screen as we're looking at it. And it builds to this event something is happening something matters and then the ending of that movie is so unbelievably powerful you never really get anything even close to that here that sure but you don't get that in great gardens either no that's fair but i i honestly i tend to prefer give me shelter to great gardens yeah. so i don't know maybe that's a personal I preference mean, i don't i i mean i understand what you're saying but i feel like actually this is what something that bothers me in a lot of documentary portraits is that there's kind of a manufactured arc out of some sure deep, you don't like, want you know? no i know it's right that's that's fair i mean gimme shelter is unique in that they basically stumbled into an incredible thing but on the other hand they were also there to document a tour whereas there isn't even any there isn't any sort of framework for what we're watching here it's not like uh, iris is getting ready for a big collection or a big museum exhibit or she's closing down her shop i mean some of these things we see happening in the movie but I don't know. It just feels a little unformed, let's say, in a way that I felt I feel like maybe just a little bit more of a rigorous structure might have. I don't know. I would have liked it even more. Yeah, I, I, that didn't bother me. But uh, I think that I think this does. I do think the movie exists as an interesting counterpoint to Grey Gardens, even mm-hmm. in the idea. It's funny that I still talk to people. I, I think I obviously like Grey Gardens more than you do. Yeah. But that I've talked to people who have expressed over the years uh, like discomfort with gray gardens with this idea that it's exploitative sure. and that has always seemed to me a strange complaint because those like little edie and big edie seem more than anyone to kind of have control of their own of the stories they like to tell right um but i i thought it was funny to see in iris sometimes the ways in which people treat her like this kind of novelty or like almost like a they t- kind of almost talk down to her a bit. Oh, absolutely. You know, and be like, oh, Iris, like, it's so good to see you. Right. What a divine, like, you know, and it's funny because she's so sharp. Like, she's so aware of these things and yeah. also clearly doesn't care at all at this point. And I think that that exists as a kind of rebuke almost of that complaint of Grey Gardens where you're like, it is, there's something condescending about being like, these people need to be protected. Right. You know, here is a woman who is like 94 now. And who is, in like, in some ways, like, the you know, doing the most she's done in this very fabulous life she's had. That they're, you know, 
that there is something in the kind of good impulse to be like, to kind of like coddle someone or shelter them that uh, that people don't necessarily need it and that actually that's not necessarily seeing them clearly right oh no she doesn't need uh protecting she, need she is it, yeah. sharp as attack she as they definitely. say and uh i feel like she's kind of an aspirational figure to me like absolutely if i would love to be at this age doing not necessarily what she's doing but having her energy having her spirit well, i think having have, her relevance well, having I, her you know having, her well, attitude having her like her her like she gives she doesn't care about what anyone thinks at all you know and i think not that in not in a way where she's not curious about other people and we see her like giving a class you know to yeah, like she likes teaching that that like of how little other people's opinions of her matter and i i love that and mm. i think that the movie suggests that that's something that also really kind of solidifies with age and that right. is a great gift of old age to be like I don't care what you would think of me uh, in such a kind of like powerful way mm. as she has. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that it is like, it is a very light movie and it is like a very kind of like almost like a dithering one in some ways. It, it doesn't, it doesn't have a very clear direction that it's pursuing. Right. But I do think there's a lot underneath that kind of light surface that, that is there. That I, I really appreciate it. No, I agree. I think there is there is a lot to get out of this movie, as as light as enjoyable as it as it might be. So we got two strong recommendations. I think Allison's might be even stronger than mine, but definitely two two uh, positive recommendations for Iris. That is available now on Netflix. I'm too sexy for your party. Too sexy for your party. The way I'm disco dancing. I'm a model. You know what I mean, and I do. My little turn on the catwalk, yeah, on the catwalk, on the catwalk, yeah, I do my little turn on the catwalk. So we could have done like a podcast about movies about fashion or set in the fashion world other documentary I and mean, we could have just done documentaries i guess i suppose as fashion. well yeah there have been quite a few especially recently recently there's a lot about not only fashion but like you know the intersection of media and fashion there's a lot of that sort of stuff but we decided no let's not do that uh, i thought it would just be fun and interesting to maybe just talk about because iris is so you know she doesn't seem to take her cues from anyone but iris but that is not the case for anyone else. We, you know, I think we are one of the reasons we enjoy movies. I think is to sort of look at these beautiful people and beautiful clothes on screen, and there might be a certain amount of um, you know fantasy involved or you know imagination. So I thought that would be something fun to do is to sort of look at the movies that we, you know, obviously we are not uh, taking our direct inspiration from because we have neither the personal style or swagger or, or budget yes the resources the resources but that we maybe aspire to or envy i think is probably the best way to look at it just people you know and characters whose whose fashion whose style just kind of we just us we'd love and wish we could sort of emulate if we were you know incredibly wealthy and handsome and beautiful and whatnot so that's sort of where we're going with this. Uh, I don't have a Netflix pick this time. I have two rental options because I just decided to be honest and not pick something just because it was on Netflix. I picked the first two things that came to mind that we haven't, I don't think, ever talked about on the show. That's how I did it. What a betrayal. 
I'm sorry, but they're all available to rent. They are you know, these are movies that are available. So it's not like you that they're only on DVD or something. Send your angry notices to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. I'm sorry. And who knows? Maybe that both of these movies have been on Netflix in the past. And and for all we know, in 10, 10 days, they'll be back on Netflix the way that they operate. So oh, All right. All right. Well, let's hear the first one. Well, the first one, honestly, is, is a trilogy of movies. I mean, I think the first one is easiest to, to uh, describe a moment that stands out in terms of fashion. But uh, really, all three movies there are very well-dressed uh, men, let's. I'm gonna be. I'm talking about men here. Come on. Uh, just saying that, Allison. You don't. I don't think you know what my picks are. So if I say a trilogy with incredibly well dressed men, the Oceans movies. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> Oceans Eleven, Twelve, and Thirteen, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Kind of. I feel like my uh, my fashion ideal. If I could look like anyone from any movie, I feel like I George Clooney from Oceans Eleven specifically. And the moment that when I when we decided on this topic, the moment that came to me almost like a vision um uh, we'll see if you remember this moment is right it's very beginning of the movie he's just gotten out of jail and george clooney gets his grand entrance in the movie do you remember this shot he's coming up an el- escalator uh he's not he's not walking he's just standing he's sort of there's the you know the opening where he's in jail looking schlubby with a goatee and then he's revealed in all his george clooniness um, coming into the casino in Atlantic City where he's going to start all of the capering. And he gets this shot where he's in now in a probably a tailor-made suit, just very casual on the escalator. And it's like a moment of his sort of beauty is just – it's like a grand entrance. It's almost like a curtain going up except instead of a curtain, it's him arriving on screen at, at an escalator. And it's just like – he just looks so damn good. <laughs> he really does. And I looked at a few scenes from a couple of the movies. I actually enjoy all three Oceans movies. I think Oceans 12 is great, you know, underrated. I've written a whole defense about it, about how it's a movie about making sequels and how hard that is. That's not really what we're talking about today, though. So uh, I feel like all three of the movies, now they're getting they're getting a little, quote-unquote, old. I mean, these are 10 to 15 years old, these movies, they don't look all that dated, with the exception of Brad Pitt's tribal hand tattoo. I feel like that's a little <laughs> bit of a late 90s, early 2000s affectation that you probably wouldn't see in the Ocean's Eleven of 2015. But other than that, they're going for that timeless look, which I think is something you can definitely talk about in terms of fashion, right? That there are great movies with gorgeous actors and actresses, but the fashion sometimes can get a little dated, and you can get distracted by that, right? And that... Even today, you see movies from the 90s and, like, already those movies, their hair is so outrageous. The flannel shirts are so enormous that it – I don't know. It can almost take you out of the movie that the the real fashion icons, they have to look good forever, right? That teenagers still kind of want to look like James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause or uh, they still talk about – Audrey Hepburn's black dress from Bre- Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the Ocean's movies also very deliberately summon this – they're, a classic I, I, sense of also, style. Like I've always felt the ocean movies are in a way about movie stardom. Mm. You know, they are the maybe the most consistent appreciation of the the movie star glow of its cast of, of yes. you know, than like mo- like that any kind of recent movies that I can really think of, recent ish movies, right. you know, like of their beauty, certainly, but also just of their kind of charisma mm-hmm. of their like, and I think like the fashions are part of it. They Absolutely. are de- very deliberately kind of calling back this 
old-fashioned Hollywood glamour. Absolutely. And you could dismiss that and say, well, these movies are all style. Or you could kind of go the iris route and say that these movies are in some ways a celebration of what style can sort of be and, and like elevating that to this kind of great art, right? So, yeah. So that would be my first pick. I mean, you can't go wrong with any of the three movies. I think the 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 the, the style is the best in the first movie for sure. But I enjoy all three movies. And again, that Clooney escalator shot i didn't look to see if that was on youtube because i didn't have to because it's tattooed on my brain for eternity (laughs) but i bet if you don't know that shot if you look it up you can find it and it's a pretty magnificent moment all right well i love those movies as well though i do not have your kind of fondness of the second one nearly as much i love i love i do like the third one i do really like the third one uh so my first pick is a movie that of course has immaculate style as it is directed by tom ford the former uh, creative director of both Gucci and Yves uh, Saint Laurent, who went on to launch his own line. The movie is A Single Man, which is currently streaming on Netflix. It's the 2009 film. It was Tom Ford's directorial debut um, based on the Christopher Isherwood novel and starring Colin Firth as George Falconer, a uh, depressed gay British university professor who's living in L.A. It's 1962. Um, Firth got an Oscar nod for this movie. I will have to say, there is an aspect of this movie which, in which George Falconer spends the whole day basically visiting his friends, savoring life before he plans to commit suicide that night. He's so, he's so distraught over the loss of his lover a year before. Um, I, I, there's, some, there's an aspect of this movie that I find kind of fundamentally repellent in the way in which it seems sort of to be about stage managing your own suicide uh, and the kind of the ways in which it almost it like wallows in this idea of this kind of perfect suicide. Uh, And I, it's, it's a part of the movie that has always kind of nagged at me, but it is no movie has maybe ever been as immaculately kind of fashionable as this movie is. Uh, all the set the sets were kind of designed by the Mad Men team. It's also set in the sixties. Uh the Converse Con character lives in this gorgeous house that was um designed by a Frank Lloyd Wright pro- protege. It's like all glass and it's stunning. And the outfits are just incredible. Like uh Colin Firth spends a day in this exquisite brown suit. You see him get ready in the morning, this crisp white shirt, this narrow tie and the tie bar, and all of like like this, this movie is like obsessed with all of the tiny perfect details and Mm. he gets ready and he goes to work and then, and over the course of the day, as kind of, he goes on to have dinner with his friend and then they go out, he kind of first like removes a tie. And I think then like it removes a jacket and it looks amazing (laughs) all throughout. Like no one, like it looks so good. It is perfectly fit on him. Um, of course it's Tom Ford. Um, but also then you have Julianne Moore as his best friend who wears this really fabulous mod outfit with this mod makeup, um, black and white dress, and this giant updo, this kind of bouffant updo. But every single person in this movie looks incredible. Just people in passing. There is an actress who plays uh, a college student who looks exactly like Nico. And that's that's it. Like I don't think she even talks. She just see you, the camera just like lingers over her in passing. You know, you have Nicholas Holt, who's like, it looks kind of unreally beautiful in this movie. And they put him in this kind of uh, it's like a angora sweater over. A, it looks like over a, a slightly fuzzy sweater over a shirt that gives him this like almost 
like angelic haze around him and uh matthew good in flashbacks as as falconer's late lover in these like impeccably preppy outfits uh arianne phillips is the costume designer she also did we and uh walk the line i think she got uh oscar nominations for both but it's also just in the way that these characters are shot in this movie. This is a movie about someone who is trying to kind of suck in every detail of life and appreciate it. And that serves as an, as an excuse for the camera to basically like linger on every detail. Uh, when Julianne Moore is getting ready, we see her getting ready. The camera just shows a close up of her eye makeup. So you can appreciate the details of her eyeliner. <laughs> we see, you know, uh, when Falconer, talks to someone uh, who just works at the university and he compliments her on how she looks every day. And the camera kind of takes in all of these details of her makeup and her hair and her, like all of these choices she's made. It is a movie that has such appreciation for things like clothing and things like the quality of clothing and the feel of it. It is very sensual in that way. And I I think despite uh, all of I, I think this the kind of like my my deep hesitation with how this movie is set up. The, there are very few movies that have such an open appreciation for the beautiful things in life, mm-hmm. including people and including what they wear mm-hmm. and including the things they own. It is the kind of movie that makes you want to go out and buy like an extremely expensive outfit, <laughs> but uh, maybe a Tom Ford designed outfit. It's a really gorgeous movie and not just gorgeous, but very thoughtful in yeah. the idea of being gorgeous. That is a single man and it is streaming on Netflix. I mean, I remember when that movie came out, people kind of, and some people dismissing it for the same reason they dismiss something like Ocean's 11, like almost like that. It's too beautiful that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, like it's almost like mutually exclusive for a movie to be interesting, thoughtful, smart, and be beautiful, which is kind of weird. Like, why can't they be both? Why can't a movie be beautiful and thoughtful? I don't know. It's a, I, I like that movie. I like a single man. I think that's a good pick. All right, my next pick. I mean, I gotta be honest. It's not as thoughtful as a single man, but uh, there's a good-looking uh, character with a lot of great uh, style in in this movie. Uh, and and uh, thinking about this movie and thinking about you know the same idea that I was sort of w- walking around with Ocean's Eleven this idea of like timely versus timeless. This movie is from a very sort of it's from a period. It's very much of a time, and that time would be the black exploitation era. You know, it's very much of a time and a place. The early nineteen seventies, the music, the language, the violence. But the funny thing about this very timely movie and genre is that the look of its main character, whose name happens to be John Shaft, (laughs) who's the black private dick who's a sex machine for all the chicks, there's something about his sense of style, his fashion, that is completely timeless. He's not uh, dressed in, you know, uh, stereotypical 70s disco stuff. This is the early 70s, so disco is not even really a thing yet. But what's cool about John Shaft, and I've never really thought about this before. I'm sure someone's written it, noticed it before. But just thinking about Shaft, uh, a movie that I enjoy and a, and a character that I, you know, another aspirational figure in terms of style, is thinking about it through this prism of fashion and styles I'd never thought about this before, is that Shaft is basically dressed in an updated modern version of a classic private eye costume. The classic private eye costume being the overcoat, right, and uh, probably some kind of 
uh, wor- you know, a suit, something like that, sportswear. And, and, and yeah, usually a classic private eye would have the fedora, some kind of hat, something like that. Now it's the early 70s, so hats are out of style. So he's got the little, you know, the small afro, the mustache, but he's got the overcoat. Now the overcoat is a leather overcoat, right? Brown for most of the movie, black at the end. And typically, instead of wearing a button-down shirt, because it's the early, so he's got the turtleneck, right? Tan with the brown coat. And then at the end, he's got this black, it's an all-black look at the end. Uh, and then the pants, he's got, most of the movie is like, a, I think of uh, is like this like plaid pant, but not a, not a bold, not too crazy, right? This is not like Match Game 78 plaid pants. This is, a, this is actually a nice plaid pant. Uh, that, that goes with the brown. Or at the end of the movie, he's got, I think, I think he goes the full leather. I think he's wearing black leather pants at the end of the movie. But these are not like going out wanting to look good leather pants. These are, I'm going to jump through a window and I probably need something that's not going to tear easily leather pants. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking that's maybe another interesting aspect of movie fashion and maybe of movie life is that is that aspect of it where you can't look like you're working too hard at it, right? That even if the costume is wildly expensive and the hair and the makeup and everything took hours to do, it has to seem casual. It has to seem easy. John Shaft doesn't look like he spent a lot of time putting this outfit together. It just seems effortlessly cool, right? Uh, he's a complicated man, as the song goes, but his wardrobe is not complicated. Um Shaft also appears in two sequels, Shaft's Big Score, Shaft in Africa, and then he's also sort of featured, it's like a remake slash sequel from 2000, which is also just called Shaft, where Sam Jackson actually plays John Shaft's nephew, and kind of wears, like an, again, an updated version of the same outfit, turtlenecks and leather overcoats, and I was thinking about this, I was like, you know, Samuel Jackson, when he plays Nick Fury, basically plays, the, he wears the same outfit, the black overcoats, uh, with with turtlenecks and things like cardigans, things like that. So it's like that's it's like something about that look is just so awesome, and I think that a case could be made that in either incarnation, he is one of, if not the coolest character in the history of movies, at least male characters, and a lot of that has to do with the costumes, with his fashion, that distinctive look that that character really had a look, and I could certainly never pull these clothes off, but I will go to my grave wishing that I could. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm not as huge a fan of the two sequels, but the first Shaft is just a, a really great action private eye movie that I, I treasure and have watched many, many times. The original Shaft from 1971, directed by Gordon Parks, that is also available, like the Oceans movies, to rent on various streaming sites. It's interesting that you mentioned that as an updating of the kind of classic private eye wardrobe, because I feel like my pick is does the same thing, mm. but taking it into the future. Ooh, I like it. Yes. Uh, so I feel like I may have talked about this movie in some degree on a podcast, uh, on, an, uh, on an SVU podcast before, but not, I think, in this context. And also, I just love the fashion in this movie so much. It is Blade Runner, which is available for rent mm. on all of the usual platforms. And what I love about Ridley Scott's vision of the future is that it is a very lived in one, you know, that as opposed to the kind of, uh, there, there's a, a tendency, I think, for certain, some futuristic films to present everyone as essentially living in a uniform, 
you know, the future is everyone is wearing the same thing. Like it might be futuristic looking, but everyone tends to wear the same thing. And I don't know where that came from. And I think it, it sometimes comes with the utopian idea, like the kind of utopian futures that some out in this perfect future, everyone wears, I don't know, kind of identical clothing. But I, I, I love the ways in which every what everyone is wearing in Blade Runner is both, it's, it's kind of updates of existing fashion. And it's also updates of noir fashion. Mm-hmm. So they managed to be futuristic and throwback at the same time. Uh, Charles Node and Michael Kaplan were the costume designers of this movie, and they won some awards for it. Uh, you know, Deckard, Harrison Ford's character, wears a trench coat himself. It is this, it's not a classic trench coat. It's got this interesting collar that he always keeps raised. Right. You know, but it got to have the raised collar on the trench coat. I was trying to think, why is that? Why does a private eye need to have a collar turned up? Like what? So he can look sneaky, I guess. (laughs) Yes. But like, I'm trying, I was trying to find like, what is the symbolism? Like, does you, if you like, what does it represent to have a collar turned up? Is it, is it that like, I keep the wind off you. I think Yeah, you're thinking more practically. I'm thinking that there's maybe some sort of like elemental suggestion. There is, I think there is somewhere deep down. Well, uh, you, you Know, Something about vulnerability. You don't want your, your neck, neck exposed. exposed. Yes. You don't want anything exposed. You're hiding. You're protecting. All right. You're cocooning yourself in this way. I'll take it. All right. But, uh, you know, Deckard's coat is very iconic. And then underneath it, which I don't think you get to see that often, but he's wearing this this tie, this kind of like grid-like tie on, I think, a checkered shirt, um, which I, I, I kind of reassuringly reinforces that all of the, like, Basically, all detectives still wear kind of the same things, even if they come in more futuristic uh, patterns. But, uh, you know, I love the way in which that puts him in this long tradition, even if he is this very kind of like distant and alien character in other ways. Um, and, and then you have, you know, Sean Young's character, Rachel, is the future by way of Joan Crawford. Uh, like a lot of those silhouettes of her clothing, she's got these like these kind of uh, structured shoulders and then these narrow tapered waists on her suits. And then at one part, at one point she wears this like cocoon coat made of fur that is just totally outlandish, but is, it's also, it looks like a kind of almost like it's something kind of like an ethnic. So it's supposed to be like a nod to some particular ethnicity, but then also crossed with like a typical old fashioned starlet you know, coat, like white fur coat that someone would be swimming in. And it's really interestingly weird looking, you know, and then you have Zora uh, running through the streets in her showgirl outfit with a clear plastic overcoat on top or Daryl Hannah's Pris, of course, in the kind of like punk rock outfit with the black bar of makeup over her eyes. I like so much that all of these fashions have a history to them. And I think that that's something that we weirdly often seem to kind of overlook in a lot of visions of the future is, is just like they get invented whole cloth and they never seem to have right. evolved. What is the origin of this right. look? Where they does it come from? never seem to have evolved. But of course, like all fashion we wear, has a th- you know, comes from something. Right. And uh, yeah, I just love the way this movie looks. It's, uh, it, you know, it's one that's very cool to look at in addition to being one I love in general. Uh, that is Blade Runner, and it is available for rent. You credited the costume designer for that film, and I think that's something I should probably do here. So let me just give a, a salutation to Joseph 
Alisi, who was the costume designer of Shaft. And then each of the Ocean's movies had different costume designers. Jeffrey Curland, Milena Cananero, and Louise Frogley. So kudos to all of those very, uh, very wonderful costume designers who have uh, done such lovely, lovely things with fashion on screen. All right, let's briefly run through some new releases. Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. Allison's favorite segment on the show because she doesn't know its name. There's quite a few movies that are opening this week as you are hearing this, if you're hearing this the week that we released it. Uh, the, the big one that we've both seen and thus can discuss for a minute or two is a, a new film by an up-and-coming filmmaker by the name of Steven, what is it, Steven Spielberg? Yeah, he's Steven a, Spielberg. He's got some talent, that one. He's going I think places. he's got a bright future. He, I like, you know, he's got a kind of an old-fashioned feel to it, but it might know. And he's a star, some... too. Young Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, this guy. I mean, I remember him from Bosom Buddies. I don't know what he's been doing since then, but yeah. yeah. So it's the new film from Spielberg, Bridge of Spies, with Tom Hanks. It's their first film collaboration in a while, at least. Yeah, is this their third film together? Saving Private Ryan, The Terminal. Uh, I'll double check yeah. while we're talking. There's probably one we're missing. I mean, they made TV shows together, I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think, Allison? I like this movie quite a bit. Not as much as you did. I know you were a huge fan. But I, I think that it is very moving in the way it presents this very kind of dad-like figure, this guy who is an insurance lawyer. And, and as... And makes him into a character who's heroic, mostly for his exacting morality, you know, that he, it is the, this hero who is not dashing in any way. Tom Hanks spends the second half of the movie sick, like he has a cold and is just <laughs> sniffling, like sniffling and coughing. the whole time. Mm-hmm. He's not dashing. There's nothing dashing about him. There's nothing kind of swaggering about him. It is about someone who is good at his job, but who is also just so moral. And in a very gray area that he is trying to navigate. He brings this kind of these ethics is that he's very exacting about. And the movie in, which is like done in this very kind of like, you know, like in a way that doesn't like fit any of the kind of like, it's exciting at parts. It's a thriller, but Mm -hmm. it's not like a big swooping thriller. No, it is about negotiating a prisoner release. Uh, I, I think that there is something that is kind of like stealthily very like, poignant about that Mm. and about that type of heroism that it presents which is like a very atypical one at least in terms of what you see on screen i agree the movie we forgot by the way which is embarrassing because it's my favorite of all those movies is catch me if you can of course (laughs) which is uh maybe one of my all-time favorite spielberg movies frankly so that's pretty embarrassing but anyway yes i like this movie quite a bit maybe even more than that well definitely more than you did because i really like this movie and yeah it it is not flashy it is not it has moments of flash has this great opening sequence that is mostly wordless, just kind of this cat and mouse sort of chase through New York City in the late 1950s. It has a really impressive uh, crashing sequence. I don't think that's a spoiler in the slightest because this movie is about this uh, YouTube spy plane pilot who's shot down and has to be sort of uh, saved, as you say, by this insurance lawyer. Yeah. It's about two people who have very exciting lives. And then one the guy people who who's not boring, at all. The yes. people whose boring lives it is to sort of bring those people out of their exciting lives. Yes. Yeah, basically. I mean, as you said, I, that's what the, the, what you're describing. The, the sort of – the fact that he is a sort of a boring, ho-hum guy but just has this quiet sort of morality and sort of exacting kind of strength, this quiet strength. Not the 
James Bond strength, right? Not the Shaft, John Shaft strength, which is a kind of strength I can enjoy watching on screen as well. But it's just, you he's know, sort of— He's a good guy. He's a good man, and he's—and also sort of—and fearless, right? That he, And he's willing to stand up. That actually is one of the things that I bet some people will sort of hate about the movie is the fact that there is this sort of story that is told by a character played by Mark uh, Rylance, who's a Russian spy— who's a key part of this sort of uh, plot of negotiations. And he tells this story from his own childhood about a guy he called the standing man, which he relates to Tom Hanks's character. I will say like when that story made its kind of last appearance, I cried. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> obviously it worked on me. It is, but this movie is, you know, Spielberg has, is not afraid of sentimentality at times. And I feel like this movie really, by the end of the movie really kind of embraces that in a few scenes. And I, it is sort of kind of defiantly like old fashioned, you know, like in the same way that Tom Hanks's character won't go along with sort of the the winds of being paranoid and fearful and just giving into that. This movie is not going to give into the the fashion of being ironic and jaded and anything like that. It is very much an old fashioned kind of movie. And that's the thing. I think that kind of works with the whole thing. Sure. I mean, I, the, the thing is, it made me think of Lincoln, which is a movie I thought was fen- phenomenal, mm-hmm. you know, in the ways in which it was like, do you know what? The actual stuff of the democratic process is fascinating. Yes. I do. They, and it doesn't need to be sexed up. It doesn't need to be, you know. Right. Like, and again, that the heroes are not necessarily the people with the, the running and jumping and the guns. They're the people sitting in these rooms talking. Yes. Yes. And I, it, it, this forms a nice kind of Cold War spy counterpart to Lincoln in some ways in that, in just in having this idea of rooting heroism in characters who are in no way kind of macho, who are in no way need to be the center of attention yes you know the hank you called hanks i think schlubby or just kind of average ordinary yeah i mean that's yeah the thing is that like yeah that we've sort of the 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 idea of a hero we have now like just from most movies these days is the is the super literally the superhero like the physical superhero right and this is a guy who definitely calls back to like a henry fonda you know 12 angry men is a movie that i thought of a lot during this yeah no it's like it's jimmy stewart and henry fonda yeah and you know and i say he's a dad i mean that in no kind of condescending way he is literally a dad but also that the movie suggests a lot of his strength is rooted in kind of his like his kind of home life and his uh, you know like right. his kind of the stability of his existence of yeah. this kind of like kind of rooted existence i could talk and talk and talk about yes, this movie more and well, just you said- talking about lincoln like th- th- they are kind of companion pieces but the other thing that's not the, the, exactly the same and it's like as i recall lincoln there's a little bit of like how you have to make compromises uh-huh. right and, and, and this one to is some about degree it's about how not. you can't and sometimes you can't make compromises you have to hold firm so yeah anyway anyway i really enjoyed this movie yes and should mention uh the coen brothers wrote the script and there are flashes of coen humor in this very welcome yes they make a nice combo the spielberg kind of sentiment and the kind of bleak black comedy of the coen just like the the weirdness the dry wit there are flashes of it that are pure coens in this movie yeah the characters there's some great character actors mark rylance is also by the way a delight i i yeah he's one that I don't know if he'll get nominated, but no. I feel like it's just not he'll the right on, kind of role. For I feel it. like he'll be on my end of the year best supporting actor list, though, because I thought he was great. All right, let's get to behind the eight ball now, where we wrap things up on the show by counting down three new releases on streaming, two listener recommendations sent to us from you guys, and we give you one film that's been chosen blindly by number from each other's my lists. 
Allison, why don't you go first this time? I will go first. All right, so let's start with three new titles on streaming. Okay, first up is a movie that is not, it's going to be on Netflix in a few days after this podcast drops. It is Beasts of No Nation. This is Netflix's first venture into a scripted film, an original scripted film. Um, and it's also going to be in theaters, which is, it's, it's going to be, uh, we'll see how that works out for them to have a movie in theaters that's also available on Netflix. Uh, you know, it's, it's, will people still want to see it in theaters? I would actually suggest that this movie is worth seeing in theaters because it is visually very striking. You saw it at Toronto. I did. It's directed by Carrie Fukunaga, who directed Sinombre and Jane Eyre, and is probably best known for directing True Detective Season 1 and escaping just in time for the kind of massive plummet in, uh, in kind of how that series was looked at. And it's a movie starring first-time actor Abraham Atta as a boy in Africa who is press-ganged into becoming a child soldier in his kind of unnamed West African country uh, with a group of rebels in a civil war. And it is obviously some really dark subject matter that is all shot like extremely beautifully. And you have Idris Elba as the commander of this force who uses all of his charisma for evil, essentially. He is just as charismatic as Idris Elba inevitably is, but is also this very menacing figure. Uh, so that is Beast of No Nation that is going to be available on Netflix on October 16th. Currently available on Netflix is The Nightmare. This is the latest film from Rodney Asher, who did Room 237, which is the documentary about all of the kind of the shining fan theories and uh, all of these sometimes very wild theories. This is also another documentary. It is one about sleep paralysis. This is where you wake up or think you wake up and you can't move and something terrifying may be happening to you or in your room and you can't get away you from it. You have like it. a vivid dream. It's kind of waking it's a, dream. It's like a waking a dream. A hallucination, yeah. but you can't escape, can't move, can't wake up. Right. And it's kind of a state in between waking and sleep. And uh, it's a sounds sp- terrifying. It I'm afraid. Sp- I'm honestly a little afraid to watch this movie because I think it'll actually give me nightmares. Yes, I will say this manages to be the rare frightening documentary, and mm. and one that is it consists entirely of talking heads of people who have had sleep paralysis, just basically describing what would they would hap- what would happen, and it's recreated on screen as they discuss this. And some of these recreations are really frightening, especially considering how many of them feature this same thing, which is that you're in bed and this dark figure comes in the door and walks towards you. Mm. And a lot of these scenes are shot like from the perspective of the person who would be like from, Mm-mm. yeah. Mm-mm. Uh, it, it gets a little repetitive towards the end, I will say, especially since it's so determined to not kind of get outside of the kind of perspective uh, of the experiences of its subjects, right. you know, so it doesn't uh, go talk to like doctors and all of that. About right. It. Similar but, to room 237. Right. Exactly. And uh, so it gets a little claustrophobic towards the end in that, but it is still like something that is genuinely new and I not, you know, like in, in terms of what I think it sets out to try and do. That is a nightmare. It is on Netflix. And finally, new to Fandor, The Decline of Western Civilization 1, 2, and 3. Penelope Spheris, maybe still best known for directing Wayne's World, um, first made a name for herself with with a documentary in 1981 about the Los Angeles punk rock scene called The Decline of Western Civilization. Featured some fantastic performance footage. uh, Featured Darby Crash, who died not long after. 
Um, and then this series grew into a trilogy. The third one that was about gutter punks in L.A. was actually made in 1998, well after Spheris' studio career was kind of like established. But it's the second one that's nearest and dearest to my heart because it is about the heavy metal and glam rock scene of the 80s and features some fantastic interviews uh, showcasing both the kind of overindulgence of the time and some of the oblivious sense of self-importance <laughs> that some of these people have. Spheris' great idea was to let her subjects choose how they wanted to be interviewed like where and so of course some were like I want to be drunk in the pool and some of them were like I want to be in a lingerie store and some of them were like I want to be interviewed in bed surrounded by women and there is a particularly endearing one Some people meaning Paul Stanley yes there's a particularly endearing interview with Ozzy Osbourne as he is cooking breakfast yeah Um, and these have been long kind of hard to see and it they've been I think like like all cleaned up and released on DVD and now are available for streaming on Fandor. Yeah. Number two in particular is so great. It's so great. It's essential. Yes, (laughs) Yes. absolutely. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. Well, first up we have one from Dion who writes, I would like to recommend man from Reno streaming on Netflix. It is from 2014 and is directed by Dave Boyle, a director I know nothing about. It also stars a whole lot of people I know nothing about except for possibly Pepe Serna, who is a familiar face as a character actor. I actually checked back through some of your shows to see if you had recommended it before because I started watching it based solely on the title, which I thought sounded familiar. The story involves a sheriff from a rural county in California, played by Pepe Serna, and a Japanese mystery writer, played by Ayako Fujitani, and a man from Reno who disappears. It is nearly impossible to explain any more about the story. Every time I thought I figured out what was going on, the story would veer off in another direction, kept me guessing until the end. The movie is in English and Japanese with subtitles and is shot on location in San Francisco and other parts of Northern California. That is The Man from Reno, streaming on Netflix. And then we have a recommendation from John, who writes, Perhaps you've noticed that there's a plethora of modern Hindi language films currently on Netflix streaming. This is an area of film that's been largely ignored by mainstream film critics. There are a couple of really strong films in that selection, most notably, I apologize in advance for slaughtering these titles, Band Baja Bharat, a charming romantic comedy about wedding planners, and Diwale Dohania Lejenge, I apologize if I slaughtered that, is a classic from the mid-90s, and that is one I've heard a lot about, actually, personally. A virtual ground zero for Bollywood romantic comedy tropes. It's also really good. Um, Thank you, John. That's true. We don't get to talk. We don't talk about this a lot. It's hard to kind of sometimes know where to begin, so Mm -hmm. I really appreciate those recommendations. Yep. All right, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. Uh, you give me number forty-five, which is Horns. Oh yes. Um, here is the description: hmm. Accused of murder, Ig Parish wakes up one day to find he's grown a set of horns, hmm. compelling people to confess their sins to him. Yeah. Uh, that's Daniel Radcliffe. It is. And you uh, haven't seen stars, this one. I have not. It also stars Juno Temple and I think Max Minghella, directed by Alexandra sure Aja. Yep. I know no one liked this movie. No. It was widely disliked. It was. Uh, but I loved the Joe Hill novel on which yeah, it's based. Yeah, people, people like that novel. Yes. And so even if it's, it kind of slaughters a novel, I was curious enough to add it to my my list so I could, you know, weep my way through. It's, it's pretty far down there, though. Yeah, I, I don't know the novel. Just watching the movie. I would highly recommend the novel. Actually, and I would highly recommend all of Joe Hill's Some novels. people, uh, this, this is another movie I saw at Fantastic Fest. I think that was where it premiered, or that's where I saw it anyway. And I did not I did not particularly enjoy it, really, at all. Uh, some people who liked the book seem to think, well, it was okay. And it, you know, it sort of had some of the stuff they liked from the book. Other people said, 
Yeah, well, you you should read the book. That was their their that was their review of the film. So take take that what you will. So I'm I'm not going to tell you to delete it. If you're such a fan of the book, you should I'm maybe at least to see what they. Yeah, I can it. see I could see why. Yeah, if you, if you... I will say I do not think that Daniel Radcliffe Daniel Radcliffe is not the person. As much as I've liked him in some of the things he's done as an yes. adult, he's not the person that I would have thought of to cast in that role. That was a thing that I uh, I didn't think he was particularly well cast, to be honest with you. And that was something that some people who thought the movie was okay, we kind of argued over that. They they thought he was great. I think maybe they just like him, and so they didn't want to say that he was poorly cast in anything. I wasn't a huge fan of his performance. All right. Well, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Three new releases. All right. First up, available on Netflix it's Kingpin, the awesome but underseen comedy from the Farrelly Brothers. This was the movie they made right before There's Something About Mary, and probably the first one that got them a little bit of critical cred. Obviously, they'd already done Dumb and Dumber, but that got terrible reviews for the most part. Kingpin got a few good ones. It was sort of the the, the tide was starting to turn there. Hey, Roger Ebert loved it. Roger Ebert did love it, and it's, it's easy to see why. It's a very funny movie. It's got Woody Harrelson. Washed up bowler, he hits the road with a new protege played by Randy Quaid. Boy, how long ago must this movie come out if Randy Quaid was the protege character? Wow. Uh, It also stars Bill Murray, who has inarguably the greatest comb over in cinema history in that film. What happens to it at the end in the final scenes is Now that is a work of art. That is a work of art, that comb over. So that's Kingpin. That's on Netflix. Next up, also on Netflix, it's The Odd Couple. I am fairly confident we haven't mentioned The Odd Couple once uh, on this uh, on this podcast, at least this the new network show. I didn't even know there was a new network show I of the Odd Couple. There's a good reason for that. Matthew Perry and Thomas Lennon are the Odd Couple on that show. I don't have an opinion about that series. I've never watched it, but I have a very high opinion of the 1968 film directed by Gene Sachs and starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, playing, of course, a pair of mismatched divorced men of totally different temperaments who become roommates. Great Neil Simon dialogue, great Lemmon and Matthau performances. That is the Odd Couple, the film on Netflix. And finally, a movie that I don't think we've ever mentioned on this show either. I did a, I searched, I tried to see, maybe I missed it, but I can't believe it, but it seems like in 96 episodes we have never mentioned 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is now streaming on Netflix. The psychedelic sci-fi masterpiece from Stanley Kubrick about the dawn of man and the journey to Jupiter with HAL 9000. If you're looking for a film, I was thinking about this, if you're looking for something to follow up The Martian with at home on Netflix, how about a little compare and contrast with The Martian in 2001? I think that would be an interesting thing to do. So 2001 A Space Odyssey, available now on Netflix. All right, two listener recommendations. All right, well, first I just want to say we have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. We don't... We're a little lax We should resurrect it. We're going to work on this, but I realized... Uh, that we actually have gotten people sending us recommendations on it that we haven't read. Some of these are a few months old. So I figured, let me do let me let me read these. So if you want to send us recommendations on Facebook, that is I will be checking them from now on. I promise you that. So our first recommendation here is from Christy. Christy writes, "Hi guys, I love the show and I'm always excited when a new episode comes out." They're a little less frequent, so it always feels like a pleasant surprise. I know you're always chasing recommendations, and I just – I literally just recommended BoJack Horseman to a friend. So I figured you guys should get the same recommendation. It's funny and definitely on the grown-up side of the animation scale and very binge-watchable. BoJack Horseman has a great and familiar voice cast, and the bonus of the trailer for – Horsing around being available, too, is the icing on the cake. Keep up the awesome work. And, Matt, please keep up the voices. That is from 
Christy. So Christy, thank you. And we've had a lot of I've had a lot of people personally recommend Bojack Horseman to me. I still haven't watched it. I have watched it. I love Bojack Horseman. All right, I need to I need to do this one. I would say also you have to give it eh, stick with it a few episodes. As many Netflix series. This is the official that should be the official slogan of Netflix. No, Netflix for, colon. Just stick with it for a few episodes. I will say, as opposed to the usual reason that you mm. have to kind of plow through, which is that nothing happens. Okay. I will say that Bojack starts off seeming like just another kind of dark Hollywood satire okay. that seems familiar, and then it kind of grows from there. Yeah, I've, I have heard that. All right, I, I'm going to have to try it. I'm gonna, Christie's put me over the edge. It's going to happen. I'm going to bump it up in the my list a little bit. I've got it in there, but I'm, I'm going to push it up. All right, and we've also got a recommendation here from Ray, who wrote to our Facebook page and wrote, In 1985, Ross McElwee set out to make a documentary about Sherman's March to the Sea and its lingering effects on the culture of the South. But just before he was set to begin filmmaking, his girlfriend left him. He continued trying to make the movie, for which he had received a grant, but its focus shifted, instead primarily to the filmmaker's own love life. While still tracing Sherman's March, which is the name of the film, McElwee instead mostly documents his own trail of destruction in the lives of about a half dozen Southern women. It sounds uber-twee, I know, but it's a thoroughly entertaining film, and it's currently available on Netflix. I highly recommend it. That is Sherman's March, and it is an excellent film. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about Ross McElwee in any way. Like, he hasn't really put anything out in a while. I know, but I'm glad someone recommended. Yes. I mean, that is a great film. It's a great film, and I've enjoyed a lot of his films. So thank you, Ray, for that recommendation. One more time, it's Sherman's March, and it is, I double-checked because we got this recommendation a few months ago, it is still streaming on Netflix. Okay, one from your My List. You gave me number 52, and number 52 right now on my list is The Escapist. I will read you the plot description. When a con man serving a life sentence learns that his estranged daughter is terminally ill, he enlists a hapless group of inmates to help him escape. And it's got an awesome cast that includes Brian Cox and Damian Lewis and Joseph Fiennes. And this film was directed by Rupert Wyatt. This is the movie he made before he made Rise of the Planet of the Apes. This is sort of what got him Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And I think it was a Sundance movie a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember it playing there and getting a ton of great reviews and people saying it was really great. And I never got around to seeing it. And so that's why it's on my list here, but just haven't made time to see it. But I've heard it's really, really good. That was a shrug Allison gave me, which is not visible to our podcast listeners, but that indicated she hasn't seen it yet either. (laughs) But I've heard so much good stuff. I need to move this one up. I need to watch this movie as well, because I remember hearing so much good stuff about it and never hearing a a, a bad word about it. But I just haven't gotten around to seeing it. The Escapist, which you can watch right now on Netflix. Allison, in 96 episodes of doing this show. I don't know that we've ever had a, a a a poll that I think will be as heated as this one. Yes. I think that this is going to be a real tussle. This one's going to come down to the wire. Got some good options here. Yes, we have some, I think, gr- three great options, but I think two of them are going to be really hotly voted for. Agreed. And I should say, this: we have all three that are brought to you by streaming. By yes. streaming outlets this time. Yes. They are streaming originals. Yes. Basically. This is the brave new world we live in. <laughs> That's true. Yes. All right. So you have the first one. What is it? I do. It's one I've already mentioned. It is Beasts of No Nation, Kerry Fukunaga's Netflix movie starring Idris Elba. Netflix's obvious investment in attempting to get an Oscar. I think most its best chance is going to be with Idris Elba as a supporting, as a supporting actor. It would not surprise me at all if he got that. But, you know, I think certainly... It is our mandate to cover a movie like this uh, uh, in, you know, 
given what we do. And I have seen this movie. I'm very interested to talk about it because I think it offers a lot in terms of how it treats very dark subject matter, in terms of how it depicts atrocity, and in terms of just uh, it's it's directing, which I think is very kind of is is very engaged and very impressive. So lots to talk about there and uh i you know it's a movie that's going to be open in theaters at the same time so let's see how that works out mm-hmm. um so that's beast of no nation it's going to be on netflix on october 16th that's your first choice okay our second choice is a new show which is new to amazon prime and the name of the show the amazon original is red oaks i will read you the description of the plot from amazon it says in the summer of 1985 20-year-old David Myers takes a job as a tennis pro at Red Oaks Country Club in suburban New Jersey as his parents, girlfriend, and co-workers pull him towards a future he's increasingly unsure he wants. And uh, among the reasons that we were interested in this one, the pilot was directed by David Gordon Green. The show is executive produced by Steven Soderbergh and Gregory Jacobs, who was his longtime assistant director who directed Magic Mike XXL. And, and uh, created the series. Right? And he co-created the series, I believe, yes. And the cast includes Jennifer Grey, Paul Reiser, Gina Gershon, so some good actors. It is set in suburban New Jersey, and it's a guy who's a tennis pro at a country club. And I grew up in suburban New Jersey, and I spent most of my Saturdays at a, t- at a country <laughs> club playing tennis. Not a country club, a racket club, really. It wasn't a country club, but – so. I'm, I'm obviously I will be fact checking this one very, uh, very seriously. Uh, so, yes, that is option number two. The series Red Oaks uh, with television series. We can't always see the whole thing. We'll try our best to see as much as we can. Option two, Red Oaks streaming now on Amazon Prime. And option three is one that I mentioned in the last episode, and it's one that's on a streaming service that we don't talk about that often just because of its schedule, where it has movies on for usually 30 days at a time. But this time it has done something, it has accomplished something that's a very big deal for them, which is that it has the premiere of Junoon, which is the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson. It is one that he kind of shot quickly. It is a documentary, and it is about Johnny Greenwood uh, of Radiohead and his frequent collaborator, uh, maker of these great kind of soundscape scores of his movies. Uh, And it is about how he goes, they both go to Rajasthan in India to record a new album with a lot of like local musicians. And... I don't know. I will say not like making of album movies are not usually my sweet spot, but Paul Thomas Anderson certainly is. And I am very curious to see what he does with this format. He's also shooting on digital, which for, I think the first time in a movie. And I want to, I would like to see what he does with that and what he kind of depicts about the creative process of Johnny Greenwood, who is, I think, you know, pretty phenomenal in terms of his contributions to Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. So that is Junoon. We will sign up for movie in order to see it for you guys. Uh, and that is your third option. Okay, so what movie or TV show should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote, though, must be received by Monday, October 19th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And then you'll have all that week to watch the film or the show. And then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on Tuesday, October 26th.
filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and the tv shows that we have discussed in the episode the film spotting svu remix theme song is by vince vandal listen to more of vince's work at vincevandal.com and we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you pick and which of those new streaming properties will you pick we are very curious to see in the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners, and other ones that I might find out there. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>